How's everybody doing tonight? All right, so, you know, um, I always wonder, okay, so how am I going to start off tonight? And uh, um, it's probably um, not surprising that for this book to talk about perseverance is a good thing. And, you know, you can look around the room. You guys are the ones who have persevered, so way to go. And uh, uh, you've persevered to the night that is the night that this whole book is about. Remember when we looked at uh, Revelation 1? If you're there, open your Bibles to that, and um, we're going to do a little review um, after I pray. But uh, um, just to get us started, remember in verse 1 it says, uh, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place." He made it known uh, by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Christ, even to all that he saw. Uh, And then he goes on and talks about, hey, you're blessed if you read uh, the uh, words and hear them, and then, most importantly, that you keep them. And so uh, the idea of perseverance is all through the book of Revelation, uh, specifically in their in uh, uh, several different places, but the idea is um, in the letters to the churches, the ones who are promised the crowns and the good things, the rewards, are, are who? They're the people that overcome, the people who conquer, the people who persevere throughout. Okay, so way to go. You guys are in. You're the perseverers. And tonight, we're going to have a chance to talk about um, the thing that the whole book's about. And that's about the return of Christ. Okay? And so this, um, as I tweeted uh, uh, earlier this week, this is the high point of history. And so uh, it's going to be fun to dive in tonight to uh, talk about that. So let me pray for us, and we'll get rolling. Father, thanks for the opportunity to gather, to open your word, and to be edified by it. So, Father, help me stay out of the way and let your message of uh, the book of Revelation uh, wash over all of us. And may we be people who um, hold fast to what we have. May we be like uh, the um, people of Smyrna and the people of Philadelphia and that we uh, persist, that we persevere, that we endure, and that we stick to uh, our course of following hard after your Son. So thanks for this time. Thanks for these folks. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So let's uh, begin with a a quick overview. Here's our faithful slide. We're all the way down to uh, week four. Uh, Next week we'll uh, uh, bring it to a close. And what I hope to do next week is... um, you know, we only got three chapters to do, so we ought to be able to knock those out. It's just eternity, no big deal. Um, but we'll also talk about the millennium and talk about the order of the uh, resurrections and talk about some of the things you just go, hey, um, you know, how does all that happen? You know, how do people end up populating the millennium and things like that? Um, and then we'll have an opportunity to review. But I hope to leave about 30 minutes for questions. Okay? So next week... Get ready. Bring your questions, and uh, um, I will do my best to answer them. And uh, even the ones that uh, I can't give you an answer right then, uh, I will say, I don't know, which is also an answer. 
um, but I'll find out. So um, think about your questions. This is not uh, stump the teacher night, uh, but um, if you have questions about what we've talked about, uh, then let's uh, use that time next week to talk about uh, and try to answer those sort of questions. Okay? And so let's start with our key verse, uh, 119. You know, we've talked about the things that uh, John saw in chapter 1. And we've uh, uh, looked at the letters, uh, the things that are in chapters 2 and 3. Last week we uh, started down the road of the things that happen after this, the things in the uh, future uh, from John's perspective and from our perspective too now, the things that will take place after this, after these things. Okay, so that's where we are. Um, if you'll remember, um, we talked about the letters to the seven churches, and you can see the churches uh, right up here. They form a nice little um, um, kind of spearhead right here. And you can see how John probably traveled from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira uh, to Sardis to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And uh, uh, you can see how um, he just probably rode that uh, circuit or he walked it. It's uh, um, probably uh, the, those uh, towns were close enough together to where he could actually walk to those uh, individual churches. So he's writing to folks that he likely knew. Okay? And uh, um, anybody brave enough to want to stand up and uh, give us the uh, seven churches and what they're about? Be worth a book to you. Nobody? Come on, somebody's memorized them. All right, so we started off, the first church was, which one? Erring Ephesus. Ephesus, way to go. And what was Ephesus' problem? They had left their first love. And what was that? What did that mean? The gospel, yeah. They had been churches that had been responsible for evangelizing um, all of Asia. And so, you know, Paul used love at least 15 times in the book of Ephesians. And here, 30 years later, Ephesus has left its first love. Yikes. Where will Watermark be in 30 years? Where will you and I be? Well, I think I'm going to be in heaven, um, so I'm going to leave it with you guys uh, to um, be the, the future of Watermark so that we can be a church that is persevering, that has not left its first love. Okay, so then um, we move up a little bit and we travel to Smyrna, and Smyrna was? Suffering, suffering Smyrna, right. Uh, and they were suffering well. Even though the world looked at them as if they were poverty-stricken, how does Christ describe them? They're rich. Okay? And then from Smyrna, we move on to Pergamum and... Permissive Pergamum. And why were they permissive? They were the compromising church, exactly. And so... um, They were allowing things like the teaching of uh, um, the error of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans that um, Christ said that he hated and that he would make war against. And then uh, we moved on to the next church. It was Thyatira. And what was the word about Thyatira? Tolerating Thyatira. See, y'all could have done this. That would have been worth a book. 
Okay, it's, this isn't hard. You just have to be willing to stand up in, in front of folks. And, um, well, maybe that is pretty hard. Um, looking at it, this group, I'm used to looking at 12, uh, a jury of 12, and that was a lot easier when there were only 12 faces. Okay, and so Thyatira uh, was having the same sort of uh, situation. Um, they were tolerating uh, what? Jezebel, and Jezebel was someone within their body who was teaching error. And so they were putting up with that. And, you know, we talked about in First Kings the original Jezebel and how she was one who incited her husband Ahab to do evil and to do worse um, sort of things uh, than had been done up to that point in time. Okay? And then we move over to Sardis. What was Sardis? Spiritless Sardis. And why were they spiritless? They thought they were... What? They thought they were alive, but they were really. And what does the Spirit bring? Well, the Spirit brings life. And so, you know, Christ is depicted there as being the one with the seven spirits. And so that is what brings life to uh, dead people in dead places. And then Philadelphia was one of the two uh, churches that were doing well. Uh, and we called them what? Faithful Philadelphia. Okay, and so what were they told? They were encouraged to do what? What we just talked about. To what? Persevere. Um, And the way uh, John expressed that in that letter was to hold on to what they have. Okay, and not let anybody take their crown. Okay, and then finally we ended up with the church that was probably in the worst shape. Uh, Laodicea, which we called lukewarm Laodicea. That one's pretty easy to remember. And so they were neither hot nor cold. Uh, They weren't useful in any manner. And so the Lord says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And, um, you know, they were a banking center. They uh, um, produced this uh, uh, famous black wool, and they were well known for their medical school and uh, the ISAV uh, that it produced. Uh, but what does Christ say about them? That they're poor, naked, and blind. Uh, but even there, he offered hope to them. Okay? And so, as long as we're drawing breath, there's still hope. And so the best churches, uh, uh, churches 1 and 7, Ephesus, and, I'm sorry, the worst churches were uh, uh, Ephesus and Laodicea, churches 1 and 7. And then churches 2 and 6, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were in the best shape. And remember, the ones in the middle had some good things about them and some not-so-good things about them. And uh, again, on the letters, the thing to remember is that the depiction of Christ is what's important to what was going on in that particular church. And, you know, some people look at those churches as representing the history of the church down through the ages. Uh, But, you know, really any of those churches, or we could be any of those churches today. And, you know, I've often said when I've uh, been teaching Revelation that, man, I could be all seven of those churches in one day, okay? And so the bottom line is that we want to heed the Christ's message to each one of the churches, not only for our church, but the church is only people. And so for ourselves, we want to heed that message that we would persevere, Okay, and so you got your Bibles open? 
Let's uh, turn to uh, chapter 4. 4 and 5 occur where? Where? Heaven. Right. And chapter 4 deals with uh, uh, the Father on His throne. And chapter 5 focuses on the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain. But He's pictured as what? As what? He's like I am. He's standing. And we talked about how standing indicates that He was ready for action. He had a job left to be done. Okay, and, you know, we start off in uh, heaven, we start with grace, and, uh, you know, the Lord operates on the basis that grace, or a pattern of grace, then judgment. And what a great thing that our God is willing to be gracious to us, to extend opportunity after opportunity uh, to repent, to get in line with his program, to be smart and do it his way, not my way. Not your way, but his way. And uh, if we'll do that, then we'll uh, be um, in the group that will escape judgment by believing in his son. You know, um, Paul writes and says that, hey, if you've trusted in Christ, then you won't see wrath. Remember that pattern throughout uh, uh, the judgment period, the pattern of uh, grace, then judgment. Let's go over to that. Okay, and so we talked about, remember how the scene flip-flops back and forth between heaven and earth? But we start off with the prologue in heaven, and then we run into which set of judgments? The sealed judgments. Um, The first six were in chapter 6, and then we have a grace interlude of the 144,000 witnesses being sealed in a time of worship up in heaven. And then come the uh, trumpet judgments. And again, we have the pattern of uh, six trumpet judgments and then a grace interlude. And that next interlude is when uh, we see the two witnesses are sent in Revelation 11. Okay? So, sealed judgments in six, grace interlude in seven, uh, trumpet judgments in eight and nine, um, and then ten, eleven, um, we see um, another grace interlude. The seventh trumpet is uh, uh, sounded in uh, chapter 11, verse 15. And out of that comes the next series of uh, uh, judgments, the bold judgments, the most severe. Okay, And we talked about how these judgments were intensifying and how, you know, from our reading, from my reading of them, that they're linear, that they happen in some sort of chronological sequence and that the seals come first, and then, um, you know, in, when we'll look at this in just a second, but um, the sealed judgments pour into the bowl, into the trumpet judgments, and the trumpet judgment, um, number seven, pours out the bowl judgments. Okay? With me on that? You know, let's stop for a second and look at uh, chapter 9 in reference to the trumpet judgments. Uh, Those are trumpets 5 and 6. And you really kind of see things um, getting way out of control. Uh, It's likely, I think, that um, starting with the trumpet judgments, uh, those likely occur in the uh, second half of the tribulation. Okay, because you see even in the first trumpet, that uh, um, 
hail and fire thrown to earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees and all the green grass. And just imagine if something like that happened today, what an ecological disaster that would be. Okay, and so you really see how things have intensified with the coming of the trumpet judgments. I think it's likely that we're by that point we're in the second half of the tribulation, uh, which is also known as what? Great tribulation, exactly. Okay, and then by uh, trumpets five and six in chapter nine, um, remember we talked about uh, three sort of realities that we can take uh, from Revelation nine: that there is an unseen spiritual world uh, around us, and at that point they get to see uh, what's been around us. They also see, in a very dramatic way, the sovereignty of God. And then finally, and really most importantly, and most in a, the one that's most heartbreaking to me is that you just see the hardness of sinful hearts. And if you look over at 9, uh, 20 and uh, 21, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver, etc. Nor did they uh, repent of their murders or their sorceries, etc., etc. And so man's response to these horrible judgments is one to basically shake um, his fist at God instead of repenting. And so gang, you know, whatever we are, we want to be a people uh, who have soft hearts. Who, when we mess up, that our instincts are instead of shaking our fist at God, our instincts are to turn around and say, Father, you know, I've sinned and I want to reestablish fellowship with you. Because the picture of the Heavenly Father in the um, parable of the prodigal son, which really should be named the parable of the forgiving father, is that he ran through the village to pursue his son uh, when he saw him coming back. And that's how uh, our Heavenly Father is with us when we come back to him. That he runs to um, welcome us back uh, into fellowship with him. Okay, and so in between the uh, uh, trumpets we have uh, 10 and 11, um, with uh, 11 focusing on the uh, two witnesses. And then we have the seventh trumpet uh, unfold. And there's uh, still uh, some more color commentary. And remember we talked about last week that uh, um, these proceed along uh, with the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments being the sort of thing that's driving the plot along, if you will. Okay, does that make sense? So th- those three sets of judgments are the things that move the story along. And then God, um, in his wisdom, has added in this color commentary in these chapters like 12, 13, and 14. Okay, and we talked about um, that in 12 we see five important characters identified. And in 13 we see two evil characters identified. And we talked about how in 12 and 13 we really get a picture of the seven important people, if you will, for or people groups, because uh, one of them was a remnant of Israel. Um, one of them was Israel. Uh, but they're great in the sense that, uh, not necessarily that we want to grow up and be just like them, but they're great in the sense that they're important for the end times drama. 
So those are identified in chapters uh, 12 and 13. And then in 14, we see uh, Christ's ultimate triumph, and we talked about how you could actually see a little outline of the end times uh, from chapter 14. Okay? And so here are the great persons. We talked about the pregnant woman representing Israel and the great, uh, the red dragon uh, being Satan. The male child was Christ. And then the archangel Michael who led the war in heaven against Satan and uh, kicked Satan out of uh, heaven. Um, the remnant was identified. And when Satan gets thrown down to earth uh, during the tribulation, he is going to be uh, madder than the devil. And uh, he's going to uh, pursue um, his vendetta against the remnant of Israel, okay, against the woman and uh, her offspring, it says. And then again in 13, in, uh, uh, the, um, in 13 we see uh, both the Antichrist, the beast uh, identified, um, and then the second beast, um, who we've also called the false prophet, all right? And then uh, we conclude 15 and 16 with the bold judgments. And there you go. You've got the first 16 chapters of Revelation mastered. We feel good about it? Huh? Are we there? Okay, so, you know, tonight will be just gravy on top of that because tonight the event that is the one that we said we put a stake in the ground about happening um, is uh, uh, what we're going to focus on uh, for this evening, okay? So what I want to do is I want you guys to leave this study with an overview, a framework for which you can add uh, information and details and ideas, etc., really for the rest of your life as you study the book of Revelation, Okay, and but you have an overview to understand that hey, if you're in chapters 15 and 16, where are you? Well, you're dealing with the bold judgments, and that's uh, one set of seven judgments that are the worst set of all. You know, the um, seals impacted a quarter of mankind, and the trumpets impacted a third of mankind, and the bowls impacted the entire world. Okay, and so that as you think through the book. If you, you know, someone says, well, in Revelation 4, you can immediately think, well, okay, 4 and 5, that's the prologue in heaven, and uh, 4 is about the Father, and uh, 5 is about the Lamb. And so that you can uh, just use that to bring to mind kind of the story as it moves along. One of these days, uh, I'd love to come back and instead of teaching the book of Revelation, to have a class on the end times and to use that as an opportunity to take scriptures from, you know, both the Old Testament and New and put those together to just look at the events of the end times. And so maybe one of these days we'll do it. Uh, but this book is, or this study is designed to give you an overview of the book of Revelation so that as you're reading in Revelation or you have people raise questions or whatnot, you'll know uh, where... Where they are uh, when they mentioned uh, Revelation 13. And you'll think, oh, well, that's where it talks about uh, the, the two beasts and describes what um, the Antichrist and his prophet are going to be like. And together with Satan, they form the counterfeit satanic trinity. You know, Satan uh, said that he wanted to be like God. 
He wanted to have uh, godlike powers. And so, you know, he is an imitator and a counterfeiter. And so it's not surprising that he would uh, set up a system that would have someone that would be an analog to Christ and someone that would uh, uh, be an analog to the Holy Spirit. And he'd have then his own little trinity. Okay? Does that make sense? All right, so we feel pretty good. We got uh, the first 16 chapters mastered. Anybody want to ask a question right now? All right, well, save those questions for next week, and uh, let's bring them. All right, so gang, now we're to the favorite part of the evening, Revelation or Revelation. And as you'll remember, the way we play this game is that I get to ask the questions and you get to answer, and if you answer correctly, then I'm going to give you one of Ryrie's uh, uh, commentaries on the book of Revelation. Uh, but if you answer incorrectly, uh, which is what I always hope for, simply because uh, you'll have a chance to reveal something about yourself to the assembled uh, multitudes here. Okay? So the questions have gotten a little harder this week. Uh, but, you know, if you've been reading along, you can still answer them. So do Revelation 17 and 18, which talks about the destruction of religious and uh, political slash commercial Babylon, do those appear in chronological order? And uh, if so, why do you think that those are in chronological order? And if you don't think they're in chronological order, where do they fit? I mean, y'all aced last week, and so I felt like I had to ask harder questions. Did I succeed? Okay, someone's bound to want to take a shot at this. Yes, ma'am. Way to be brave. Okay, so uh, are you saying that 17 uh, comes before 18? Okay, um, are you saying that, um, and what the question really uh, was meant to ask, do you feel like that they come before or after the things that have immediately come before them in the book? Well, it obviously was a misleading question. You know, lawyers ask those sort of misleading questions. <laughs> you know, I get paid to do that when I was a lawyer. Okay, well, uh, I'll take that as a, uh, an acceptable answer. So here's a uh, book for you. Um, the one thing I would say on that is that um, 17 and 18, uh, I don't think, come um, after the bold judgments. Okay? Uh, I think 17 actually occurs during the first half of the tribulation. Um, um, possibly with the destruction of uh, uh, religious Babylon at the midpoint of the tribulation. And I think 18, which is the destruction of political Babylon, happens right at the end. Okay? And so I think that, uh, you know, uh, we've been talking about uh, how the Antichrist um, initiates the tribulation by entering into a peace treaty uh, with um, Israel. 
That's the, the, that's the trigger point for the tribulation. And then things are all hunky-dory for the first half, uh, but in the middle of the tribulation, he breaks that covenant. He uh, erects an image of him, demands to be worshipped, and he does, I think one of the things that he does is that he will uh, essentially kill off religious Babylon because he will demand to be worshipped and he will not allow religious Babylon. We'll talk about that in just a minute, but I think it's probably the um, remnants of uh, you know, what some might even call Christianity after the, all the Bible-believing Christians are taken out. It's the apostate church that's left behind. And so I think that likely comes in the first half of the tribulation, probably with the destruction in the middle of the tribulation, and then the destruction of political uh, Babylon, commercial Babylon, I think comes right at the end of the tribulation and is probably a part of the Armageddon campaign. That's what you meant, wasn't it? (laughs) I thought it was. Okay. All right, so well done. Maybe that question wasn't as hard as I thought it was. Okay, so second one, is the judgment seat of Christ for church-age believers mentioned in the book of Revelation? Yes, sir. Okay, why do you think that? The judgment seat? Okay, um, well, I think the judgment seat is for church-age believers, okay? Um, but it is not specifically mentioned in the book of Revelation. Now, there are references to um, crowns, and we see crowns mentioned in several places. Um, anybody remember which church uh, had crowns mentioned? Which one was facing death? Smyrna, exactly. And so uh, Smyrna was promised if they overcame in uh, Revelation 2.10 that they would receive the crown of life. And I think crowns, rewards, are what we're going to receive at the judgment seat of Christ. And so we'll uh, talk about that. Um, So how many think that uh, um, he was right in uh, his answer? Raise your hand if you think he was right. Okay. How many think he was wrong? All right, well, he must have been right because uh, you got more right votes. How many of y'all abstain or don't know? Uh, okay. Well, the, the, um, I think that the aftermath of the judgment seat is indicated, um, the judgment seat of Christ for believers is indicated because remember the 24 elders? What do they have on their heads? They have golden crowns. And so I think if they are indeed representatives of the church age, uh, that they will have already gone through the judgment seat and they will have already received their crowns. And so I think it is hinted at in the book, but it's not specifically mentioned. Okay, so we'll talk about that in just a minute. Okay, so now here's a really hard one. Is the wedding feast of the Lamb literal or symbolic? Who said both? Yes, ma'am? Okay, why do you think it's both? Well, um, I have to confess, I would say in answer to that, I don't know. Okay, is the, is the wedding uh, a literal wedding? 
Well, no, I think it's uh, something that's used to explain our relationship with Christ. And so in that sense, it's symbolic. But might there be a feast that uh, uh, initiates um, the um, millennial kingdom? There certainly could be. And so it may be um, um, literal or it may be uh, symbolic. Uh, But whatever it is, you know, the Lord will do it in a right sort of way. So I'm going to give you a book regardless. Way to go. Yes, ma'am. He did, and so that's an uh, an indication that it may well be a literal feast. Uh, but, you know, it will be a feast with some logistical challenges. Now, we are talking about the God of heaven, so he can handle a big crowd. Uh, and so, you know, one of the reasons that we have talked about him tarrying is that we hope it will be an even bigger crowd and that he waits to come back so that others might have a chance to join in and be a part of it. Okay, and so um, that's a great point uh, that uh, Christ did indeed say that. And so it could well be uh, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. I don't think it's actually going to happen before the second coming. Because if you, uh, and we'll talk about this when we look at uh, Revelation 19, but if you look at that, it, it says that the wedding invitations have been issued, but it doesn't say that the feast has actually happened yet. And I think that uh, if it is a literal feast, it'll be something that will happen either uh, before the initiation of the Millennial Kingdom or as the Millennial Kingdom is kicked off. Okay? Yes, sir. I do. I do. The question was, um, where does the judgment seat of Christ fit into this? And we'll talk about that more in just a second, but I think that that's what is going to be, that's what's going to be occupying the church in heaven uh, during the tribulation, that we will be undergoing the judgment seat of Christ and participating in that while events are unfolding in the tribulation. Okay? So, well done, gang. Um, here's our friend, old friend, uh, the 70 week timeline. And if you'll, uh, take a look at this on your piece of paper, or, um, up here, you'll see that, uh, for this week, we're going to be right over here in the last part of all this. Okay. So we'll be dealing with the second coming. Um, and by now, hopefully that chart is familiar to you. Um, you can read about it in Daniel 9, uh, 24 through 27, specifically in uh, 27. And so uh, this is an effort to um, uh, just underscore how Daniel, uh, one that uh, God loved in the Old Testament, um, had this revealed to him. And it's not surprising that uh, John, uh, the disciple whom Christ loved, was entrusted with this revelation in the uh, New Testament. Okay, in the Revelation, in the book of uh, uh, Revelation. All right, um, while we're still reviewing, let's take a look at our overview of the uh, tribulation period. Okay, we talked about this last week, that it will begin with the peace treaty, the rapture will already be out of the way. Uh, we weren't quite sure where the uh, invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39 fits. It could be uh, even before the 
peace treaty with Israel. Maybe that's a part of the Antichrist rising to power, but it fits somewhere in there, likely in the first half of the tribulation, I think. Um, we see what's going on with the judgment seat in heaven, the 144,000 being sealed at the first part. Um, I think it's likely that the sealed judgments, or at least some of them, will be happening in the first half of the tribulation. Uh, the two witnesses likely will at least have begun their ministry, and you know it's entirely possible they minister for 1,260 days. It's entirely possible that um, at the midpoint of the tribulation, their death will be one of the things that the Antichrist will get out of the way so that he can uh, demand to be worshipped by the entire world. The trumpet and bowl judgments likely are going to be in the second half of uh, the tribulation, the great tribulation. And then, you know, I indicate that the Armageddon campaign, not the battle of Armageddon, we don't want to think battle because it's not just a single battle, uh, but we're going to talk about the eight stages of the Armageddon campaign in just a little bit, okay? And then um, the second coming uh, terminates uh, the tribulation period. And so that brings us to this week's overview, and here's what we'll be talking about just the first half of this. Um, we'll talk about the fall of uh, uh, Babylon in a couple of different manifestations. We'll talk about the wedding feast of the Lamb, the second coming, uh, the campaign of Armageddon. And then we'll leave for next week the millennium, Satan's final defeat, and the great white throne judgment, and the new heaven and new earth. Okay? And so let's start by talking about what's happening in heaven. Okay? And if you'll turn to uh, 1 Corinthians three ten through 15... That's one of the three main passages dealing with the uh, judgment seat. That, 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Romans 14, would be the first three passages that I would send you to where it talks about. And, you know, let's pull out some of the principles we can distill from those passages. Okay? And so I think that the judgment seat, and, you know, this is something that the church doesn't do a lot of talking about. Okay? And maybe it's because it's a scary thing that our works are going to be evaluated. Um, but I think it's something that we need to know about because one day it will happen. And so it's for every believer to give an account of himself, uh, the text says, uh, to the Lord. Okay? And it's going to be on the basis of works, not on the basis of sins. Why is that? Why can't I say that? Besides the fact that the text says that. Our sins have been paid for. That's exactly right. And so, you know, the law of double jeopardy says that uh, we can't be put on trial again for uh, the same crime twice, okay? And so our sins have been paid for, and therefore it's going to be our works that are judged at the judgment seat of Christ, okay? Or evaluated, because this is a uh, uh, something that is an evaluation related to rewards, not for punishment. Everybody who's uh, participating in the judgment seat of Christ are believers. Okay? And so the question is going to be, what sort of work has each one done? 1 Corinthians 3.13 says. Okay? And the question there is going to be one of, um, is it a, something worthy or something worthless? And how do you think the Lord's going to make a decision about that? other than the fact that he's omniscient and knows everything. 
Hmm? Our fruit, that's a good way to put it. But what's at issue here? Our heart. That's what's always at issue. That's what God is always after. What is your heart attitude about what you're doing? Are you doing it for Bob's kingdom? Or am I doing it for the Lord's kingdom? And so the Lord always evaluates our heart. And I think that's how he's going to look at the works that are done uh, for the judgment seat. Was the work done for the right motivation? Was it to uh, uh, grow his kingdom and not our own? And I think it's also going to be a matter of quality, not quantity. Okay? But you have to temper that with uh, to whom much is given, what? Much is expected. And, you know, gang, has this church been given a lot? Has this city been given a lot? Has this country been given a lot? Um, man, we are blessed above all uh, throughout history. And so God is going to expect us to um, use what he's given us well for his glory and not for ours. Okay? So it's a matter of quality, not quantity. And how do we know that? Well, um, if you're looking in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, you see that uh, um, you know the works are tested by fire, and uh, um, the, you know the gold, um, silver, and precious stones; those are all purified and made uh, more pure by fire. And the wood, hay, and stubble does what? It burns up. And so it's the quality of the work that's going to be important. Okay, are you with me on that? The heart motivation, uh, I think, is what's going to be uh, an issue. You know, we're not told specifically in these passages um, that are in front of us, the First Corinthians passage or whatnot. We're told that there will be reward, but we're not told what those are. I think in other passages of Scripture, we're told that uh, uh, they're likely to be crowns. And Scripture mentions at least five different crowns, and let me give those to you. Um, the first one's in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. This is probably not in your notes. Um, and that's the incorruptible crown that's um, given for exercising self-control and gaining victory in the spiritual life. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, the incorruptible crown. And then 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 talks about the crown of rejoicing, and it's given for the work of evangelism. And the third one is the crown of righteousness, which is given for keeping the faith in adverse circumstances and for loving Christ's appearing. That's in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, crown of righteousness. And then here's one we've heard about uh, uh, in the book of Revelation, the crown of life. And that's given for enduring trials and martyrdom. That was mentioned in connection with the uh, church at Smyrna in Revelation 2.10. And it's also mentioned in James 1.12. And then the fifth crown that's mentioned is uh, the crown of glory. And that's for um, pastors and uh, elders and others uh, uh, for faithfully feeding the flock of God. That's in 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. And, you know, gang, there may be others. There likely will be others. Uh, but all of them will be used 
to honor God. Remember how we uh, read about that in Revelation 4 about the elders? What did they do with their crowns? Well, they cast them before the throne. And so we'll use those to uh, honor God. Um, And they also may be used, some of the commentators say, to determine positions of authority in the millennial kingdom. Okay, and so um, your your uh, work, your position in the millennial kingdom may uh, be uh, tied to uh, your crowns. Um, the parable of the minas uh, seems to indicate that in a um, parabolic sort of way, and that's in Luke nineteen eleven through twenty seven. Okay, and so all this sounds great until you continue reading in First uh, Corinthians three, and you see what. Well, there's also a downside, okay? Because it says if your works are burned up, what will happen? You'll suffer loss. Um, now, that's not so good. That's maybe a reason why this isn't mentioned a lot. That's in 1 Corinthians 3.15. Um, but Paul then goes on to make it clear that, hey, it's not about salvation, that the person will be saved, but he'll suffer loss at uh, uh, perhaps uh, wishing that he had done more. You know, it makes me thinking about sitting at graduation, okay? You know, we've probably all been through some sort of graduation or uh, another, and you sit there at uh, your high school graduation or your college graduation or whatnot, and you see some folks have worked really hard, and they're being rewarded for uh, excellence with which they've done that. And other folks are just happy to be sitting there, you know? And so um, um, I think back to uh, um, my college graduation, and I had an opportunity to do something that uh, I uh, just kind of frittered away that opportunity. And uh, as I sat there, I, I was thinking about, you know, if I had just done a little more work for that uh, one exam, um, that would have made a difference. And so I don't know what the suffering loss is going to look like, but I know that God is fair and that he'll do the right thing and that um, his word does say that uh, we'll suffer loss for having missed out on that opportunity to serve him, uh, but that we'll be saved. Okay? Yeah. Um, that's in Luke, it, it's in a parable, the parable of the minas in Luke 19, 11 through 27. And uh, um, I'll be happy to visit about that um, more. But, um, you know, I wouldn't get hung up on that. Um, some of that is scholarly speculation. Uh, but that is something that uh, uh, some scholars do uh, suggest. Okay? Another way to think about this is... Uh, um, like your work evaluations. How many of you get work evaluations? Okay, a bunch. Well, I just had mine here at Watermark. It's something that we do faithfully every year. And uh, um, as you might guess, um, this is not something that Watermark takes lightly and that the uh, senior staff that's doing the evaluating takes very seriously. Okay? And, uh, um, you know... Each, I meant to bring my evaluation form um, 
to just hold up and show you, but it's a very detailed form where, you know, um, my work over the last year was assessed and, you know, areas of strength are identified and areas that need work are identified. And uh, we always include a development plan of how we might uh, be able to do better. Um, and, you know, there are uh, some years that, uh, hey, it's all great news and, uh, you know, keep going. And there are other years that, hey, there are things to work on, okay? Um, and so that's not a perfect analogy to um, the judgment seat of Christ. But, um, you know, do I sit there some years and go, man, there are some things that I could have done better? You know, I'd have to say absolutely so. And there's some years that I can sit there and go, you know, this has been a pretty good year. I've worked hard and, you know, it uh, uh, has um, um, been blessed by the Lord. Okay? And so the judgment seat is not something to fear. Remember I talked about this earlier that I've kind of changed my thinking about this, that uh, I've gone from saying, man, I don't know if I want to do that. And it may be like, uh, um, you know, how lawyers do where they go up and they confer with the judge and nobody can hear what they're talking about. It may be that the Lord and you have this one-on-one conversation and that everybody else doesn't hear except, you know, 1 Corinthians 4, 5 indicates that, hey, there is going to be a commendation ultimately for everybody, okay? And so maybe they only get to hear the attaboy at the end, and they don't hear about the suffering of loss, and that's just between you and the Lord. I don't know. Uh, but I do know, um, I do know my Savior, and I do have confidence that the way he does it will be fair, and uh, the way he does it will... Um, um, be done uh, in a proper and orderly and uh, uh, ultimately a building up sort of way. Okay, Martha? And then I had a big whoosh. That's a great point. You know, um, what I hear Martha saying is that, hey, we still have an opportunity to impact the sort of evaluation that we receive. Okay. And so if we will do the things that he calls us to do, if we're willing to share our faith, if we're willing to be bold in proclaiming truth, if we do it in a winsome way that draws people to Christ instead of pushes them away, that will impact the sort of evaluation that each of us receives. Okay? So there's still time. That's the good news. And so there's time to uh, persevere. Um, and if you look at um, Revelation 4.10 and Revelation 19.8, you see that there are two results as well. And the first we've talked about, about casting our crowns um, before the throne. I think that's something that we'll have the privilege to do. We don't have much that we can give God. 
but the opportunity to give back to him the rewards that he has given to us, I think will be uh, a real blessing for us. And then secondly, you will see uh, more about this in the um, wedding feast, but the bride is described as wearing the righteous deeds of the saints. And so not only will our uh, crowns from uh, the judgment seat be something that you know we may wear on our heads, but uh, our righteous deeds will be our garb. How cool is that? That's pretty amazing. So two results there. Um, okay, so let's move on to the wedding feast. This is mentioned in Revelation uh, 19, 6 through 10. And the way I'm kind of separating these up, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but we're talking first about what's happening in heaven. Okay, so I think that uh, the judgment seat is going on, and I think at least the, the initiation of the wedding feast will uh, begin up there, even if the feast itself uh, doesn't happen until after the second coming. Okay, so uh, we're looking in Revelation 6, uh, 19, 6 through 10. And who's the focus on? Well, it's not the bride. You know, contrary to our usual uh, way of thinking about uh, weddings, that it's all about the bride's day. Well, this one is going to be all about the groom who has made this day possible. Okay, and so um, I had the privilege of conducting the uh, marriage ceremony for my daughter a year ago, and so uh, I talked about this, uh, the way uh, first century Jewish weddings occurred. And the first stage of uh, um, first century wedding was uh, a marriage contract. And uh, that often uh, included the payment of a dowry uh, by the groom or the groom's family to the bride's family. And, you know, Christ has paid uh, for us. You know, in uh, um, Mark 10.45, he says that he's given his life as a ransom for many. And he has paid for us. He has purchased us with his blood, and that um, by believing in him, we've been able to take advantage of that. And so the marriage contract is the first part of it. And then second, there's a summons, and this is, occurs uh, when the bridegroom goes to the bride's house and summons her to return to the bridegroom's home. He doesn't actually go into her house, but he calls her out. And I think that's a great picture of what the rapture is like, that Christ doesn't actually return physically to the earth at that point, but he calls us his bride to meet uh, him in the air. Okay? And so he takes them back to the bridegroom's house. And then the third part is the marriage supper, and that's what we'll be talking about uh, in Revelation 19, 6 through 10. Okay? And so after this uh, dowry payment had been made, the, the marriage was legal at that point and could only be um, uh, broken apart by divorce. And uh, then the groom would often take up to a year to prepare for his bride a new home, uh, which often consisted of an addition that was built on his father's house in the first century. And so, you know, Jesus emphasized his role as a groom to prepare a place for his bride and then to return for his bride uh, when he comforted his disciples in John uh, 14, uh, verses 2 and 3. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go to and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And I think that's a picture of what's going to happen at the rapture. And so at that point, the first century bride was expected to remain true to her groom as she prepared herself, and she lived for the day of his return, which would be heralded by a shout from, a mem- from the members of the wedding party in a midnight torchlight parade, and uh, uh, the bride's eager anticipation of her groom's return served to influence her behavior throughout this time uh, before his return, throughout the time that she was waiting. And that's what we're to do uh, today, gang. Um, Our expectation of our groom's return as the church, the bride of Christ, is to be influenced by uh, our longing, our looking forward to his appearing, and our confident expectation that he's coming back to get us. Okay? And so then, rather than entering the bride's house, the bride came out to meet him. I've talked about that. And the two, accompanied by their wedding party, returned together to the groom's home for the marriage ceremony. And that's where we are in Revelation 19, which emphasizes that the first two stages of the wedding uh, uh, celebration have already occurred. Okay? And if you look at uh, Revelation 19, you see that there is a balance between uh, God's sovereignty and uh, our responsibility. And you see that um, um, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the uh, marriage of the Lamb has come uh, and his bride has made herself ready. Have we made ourselves ready? That's our responsibility. Okay, But at the same time, uh, it goes on to say, and it was granted to granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And that's God's sovereignty to give us um, the clothing that we would wear, the righteous deeds. And so there's an interesting balance, a nice balance between God's sovereignty on the one hand, that it was given to her, and the bride's role on the other, that she was to make herself ready. Okay, and then so then the the bride will be clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints, and we need to remember that because we're going to see that same language again appear uh, in the description of the armies of heaven in the second coming. And then it goes on to close with uh, uh, one of the um, blessings of the book of Revelation. Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true, the true words of God. Okay, And so uh, I think the people who will be invited to the marriage supper obviously are not the church because they're the bride, but are the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. And they, um, for example, in uh, John uh, 3, 28 through 30, John the Baptist is described as a friend of the bridegroom as an Old Testament saint, the last of the Old Testament prophets. Okay? Does that make sense? And so I don't think this marriage feast is actually going to occur at that point because what do we have here? We have the invitations being sent out. And I think it's likely something that will occur, um, if it's a literal physical thing, it will occur after the second coming. Okay, and will be a celebration that likely either uh, will be right before the beginning of the millennial kingdom or with uh, the initiation of the millennial kingdom. Okay, 
All right, so that's what's happening up in heaven. And now let's uh, um, take a look at what's happening down here on earth. And we're going to drop back to Revelation 17 and 18. And so to start, um, let's talk a little bit about the history of Babylon. And um, as one scholar described that history, it is a long and consistently dishonorable history. And it began with a, a guy named Nimrod. Anybody remember hearing of Nimrod back in Genesis 10? Um, you know, it's worth a book to you if you know what the name Nimrod means. Yes, ma'am. Okay, he was a, he, that's exactly right, but what does the name mean? Rick? Rebellion. It means uh, he will rebel or we will rebel. Okay, buddy, I've got a book up here for you. Um, and so, you know, from the very outset, the founder of what became Babylon, uh, Nimrod, um, you know, starts off on the wrong foot. Uh, even though he's described, as Paula said, as a mighty hunter. Uh, and that sounds, well, that sounds pretty good. But his name is a clue that uh, this is not a good guy. Okay? And so we go from there to the Tower of Babel. And, uh, you know, that's located uh, uh, right where um, modern-day, um, I guess there's no modern-day Babylon, uh, although Saddam Hussein has tried to, uh, or was in the process of trying to uh, rebuild Babylon, okay? Um, but the um, Tower of Babel is described in Genesis 11, and that's right there in, in that particular uh, location. And think about the Tower of Babel. What was that an effort? It was God's or man's efforts to uh, reach, build something to the heavens. And God uh, says that, hey, we need to uh, uh, spread these folks out because they are in total rebellion. And that's when uh, uh, different languages came uh, on the scene in Genesis 11. And so Babylon got off to a rough start. And uh, it kind of spiraled out of control from there. The high point of it was under a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was the king of uh, Babylon at the height of his empire and who's written about in the book of Daniel, which is a great study. Okay, And so the high point for Babylon probably occurred uh, during Nebuchadnezzar's reign from 604 B.C. to 562 B.C. And you can read about uh, some of that in Daniel 4, 28 through 37. But if you go on and read in Daniel, you'll uh, see in Daniel 5, I think it is, that the uh, Babylon is captured in a single night uh, where uh, Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall and uh, that uh, message from God is not a good one and says that, hey, you have been weighed and measured and found wanting and uh, that very night uh, Babylon fell. It was taken over by the uh, Medo-Persian Empire in about 539 B.C. And, you know, Saddam Hussein fancied himself as uh, the uh, successor to Nebuchadnezzar, and he went about trying to rebuild the city of Babylon. And I think that the Antichrist will have those same sort of uh, um, grand ideas, and it's likely that uh, uh, he may well try to rebuild Babylon to be his capital 
during the last part of the tribulation. Okay? And so um, when you think about Babylon in Revelation 17, um, it's a picture of uh, really uh, religious Babylon or the manifestation of this um, religious system it describes as a great prostitute because of its spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness to following the ways of God. And I think that this um, will actually be built on the remains of the apostate church that will be left after the rapture. And uh, um, this system flourishes for the first half of the tribulation, and um, it, it's described as sitting on the scarlet beast, which is, uh, I think, a description of the beast of Revelation uh, 13, 1 through 10. And um, it will um, use the beast to... Uh, prop itself up and to support itself, but ultimately that beast will turn on it because he will want that system to be out of the way so that he can demand worship of the entire world. And I think that's what happens. The destruction of religious Babylon comes at the midpoint of the tribulation. Um, well, the apostate church is one that purports to be a church, but one that does not follow the ways of God. Okay? And, and so it's um, following the ways of false religion. It may talk about um, things in, in Christian sort of terms, but it's one that will not be truly following the ways of the God of Scripture. So it would be like a one-world religion. Exactly. And I think that's what they will be promoting is that, hey, this will be a great time because everybody's finally on the same page and those old... Um, you know, Bible-believing Christians are all gone, and now we can have religion flourish as it was meant to be. Okay, does that make sense? And I think the removal of the church will allow that false religion to take hold. Yes, sir? Mm-hmm. Well, if you'll uh, re- read on to the end of 17... Uh, let's see. Uh, look at verse 15. And the waters uh, that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So that's another symbol uh, that you know John uses but then interprets later on. Okay? Um, and so this system will flourish during the first half of the tribulation. And frankly, the beast will likely use it to... Uh, uh, further his own political plans, and the um, religious system will use the Antichrist to uh, support it as it seeks to be the one world church. Uh, But then uh, the Antichrist and his ten king confederation will turn on and destroy religious Babylon. Uh, I think likely it will occur at the midpoint of the tribulation as he gets it out of the way so that he can be worshipped as God. Okay? All right, um, let's keep moving, because um, Revelation 18 is of the same sort. But it deals with political-slash-commercial Babylon, if you will. And you have to remember that I think in the end times, uh, Babylon is representative excuse me, of both a city and also a system. Okay? And here in Revelation 18, the focus is on Babylon as a commercial power. 
Okay. Um, well, I've heard them describe us as spiritual Babylon, um, but I, I don't. I mean, that may be that part may be true, but I, I think that uh, um, the Antichrist is likely to want to have his own capital, and it may well be that he will uh, rebuild the city of Babylon on, you know, its old location. Um, you know, a lot of scholars believe that that's what this indicates. Okay. Uh, but it's also a system. It's a political system. It's a commercial system. And as we just saw in, in Revelation 17, it's a religious system as well. Okay, so don't just think city. Think system. Okay, it's it's like, uh, you know, Washington. Washington, D.C. is a city. But we talk about Washington doing this or Washington doing that. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the, what our government, our system of government is doing. Okay, and I think that same sort of thing holds sway in Revelation 17 and 18. Okay, and so, you know, the Antichrist destroys religious Babylon, uh, but we're going to see that God destroys commercial Babylon in a single day. And you see that phrase repeated uh, throughout chapter 18. It's in verses 8. 10, 17, and 19, that this will happen in a single day, even a single hour. That's pretty amazing. And, you know, I think we can take a principle from this as well, and that is that uh, ultimately God will destroy all human wealth that's not used in obedience to him. And the same thing is true in our own life. You know, um, God wants us, um, God's not against money. God wants us to use his wealth to honor him. Okay? He wants us to take care of our needs. He wants us to take care of our family needs. But at the same time, he gives us more than we need oftentimes uh, because he wants us to turn around and use it for his kingdom and to help his people. And so God wants us to use our money today in obedience to him. And ultimately in this chapter, we see that money and commercial wealth that's not used in obedience to him ultimately will be destroyed. And so if you look, um, here are three R's that may help you as you look at this chapter. We see remembrance in verse 5, and then we see retribution in verse 6. And finally, in verses 7 and 8, we see retaliation. And then in 9 and 10, we see lament by monarchs. Here are three M's. In verses 11 through 17, we see lament by merchants. And then in verses uh, um, 17b through 19, we see lament by mariners, the seamen who are transporting these goods. And What's heaven's response to this? Well, the close of the chapter is heaven rejoicing, and you see that carry over into uh, chapter 19. And, you know, ultimately that's going to be part of the answer to the question that uh, the martyrs asked in uh, um, conjunction with the fifth seal. Remember that? Uh, They were asking, how long, how long must we wait, O Lord, for you to exact vengeance here? Well, we're going to get our answer at the end of uh, 18. I think that's something that's going to happen right at the end and as a part of the conclusion of the uh, Armageddon campaign.
And so as you're looking at uh, chapter 18, and really throughout the book of Revelation, pay attention to the phrases and the, the words and whatnot, the ideas that are repeated frequently. And ones I just noted, um, in a single hour or a single day, uh, was in there four times. The idea of burning, torment, and laid waste, each of those words is in there multiple times. Uh, the idea of these monarchs and merchants and mariners standing far off, wanting to separate themselves from what's going on, is in there at least three times in verses 10, 15, and 17. The idea of... Um, um, Babylon being judged or judgment being exacted is in there at least three times. And then right at the end you see the phrase no more repeated at least uh, five or six times. And uh, I think it's interesting to note that the silence that characterizes Babylon after its judgment, um, there's seven things that you no longer hear. You no longer hear harpists or musicians or flute players, or trumpeters. You no longer hear the mill. You no longer hear commerce going on. You no longer hear the voices of bridegrooms or brides. And so there's no more celebration going on. And that silence in and of itself underscores the total and complete destruction of this system that has opposed God. I think that's a great picture of... um, what's happening at the end of the tribulation and as a part of the Armageddon campaign. So let's move to the Armageddon campaign. Um, I didn't talk about this picture. That's actually a picture of my son and uh, uh, colonel that he had worked for in Korea and had run into in Iraq. And they are standing in front of one of Saddam Hussein's palaces um, somewhere in Baghdad. Um, He was with the 75th Ranger Regiment and was working with uh, SEAL Team 10 uh, when he was in uh, uh, Baghdad, and we never knew where he was. In fact, this picture was actually posted on uh, Facebook by the colonel's wife, and about 15 minutes later, it was no longer on uh, Facebook. And so... uh, um, we were quick enough, though, to snag the picture, and so there it is, a picture of one of Saddam Hussein's palaces. Okay, so um, we've covered this, but uh, we see uh, political and commercial Babylon being destroyed in, in Revelation 18. These are points that we've already made about that. And here, as we move to the second coming in the Battle of Armageddon, uh, I'm standing at the um, northern end of the uh, uh, Valley of Megiddo or the Jezreel Valley. Uh, I'm actually on what uh, in... Nazareth is called the Mount of Precipice and supposedly is the site where um, when Jesus went back to Nazareth, they were going to push him off a cliff. But you're standing right at the end of that valley, and I hope that you can see that uh, it was kind of an overcast day, but that valley just goes on and on. And I've actually got a little video here that I took. And I'm standing on what's known as Tel Megiddo. The hill of Megiddo. And that's exactly what the word Armageddon means, is the hill of Megiddo. Okay, and so I am looking out across the Jezreel Valley there, this the valley of Megiddo. And you can see it's this huge valley. Okay, and uh, I took that in February when I was in Israel. And... Uh, um, 
this valley, you just can't believe how it goes on as far as you can see. Okay? But even that, even as big as that is, it's probably not big enough to um, hold all the armies of the world. And so I think the armies are going to gather around this. In fact, we read in the sixth bowl about the drying up of the Euphrates and how um, the frog demons are going to call all the armies of the world to gather around uh, this valley. And so this may well be a staging area, but I think that literally this um, ultimate battle in this campaign is going to take place uh, over a 200-mile area uh, that runs from uh, the northern end of this valley down uh, past Jerusalem. Okay, And so it's going to be literally a global war that's fought right there in the crossroads of history in, in Israel. Okay? And so um, the sixth bowl judgment begins the preparation for Armageddon. In fact, the only mention of the word Armageddon in the New Testament occurs in uh, Revelation 16. And then if you look in uh, uh, Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, we see that uh, uh, the heavens open. And the first time the heavens opened, it was to let John uh, see in. And here um, the heavens open and uh, it's to allow uh, Christ to descend. And he is the one sitting on the white horse. Um, He's called faithful and true. And it reminds us that God is faithful to his promises and will vindicate the faith of all who trust in him. And what a glorious thing that is and that will be. And says that in righteousness he judges and makes war. And so I've got um, five A's for you for this chapter. In 1911, we have his aim. And that aim is to, in righteousness, to judge and to make war. And then in verses 12 and 13, we have his appearance. And you see his eyes described and his head described, uh, uh, his robe described and his name described. And then in verse uh, uh, 14, we see his armies described. And what are the armies wearing? Well, they're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, just like the description of the uh, bride in uh, Revelation 19.8, right above. And so I think that's an indication that we, as the bride of Christ, as believers in Christ during the church age, we're going to be a part of the armies of heaven. And then uh, the next day is his authority, and we see that in verses 15 and 16. And we see his rule, and we see his wrath, and we see his name. And then uh, verses 17 through 21, we see his, his achievement, and his achievement is total victory. So his aim, his appearance, his armies, his authority, and his achievement characterize uh, what's happening in uh, the second coming. And you can read in Joel 3, uh, 2, and 13 through 15, um, a d- description of uh, how the nations will gather in the valley of Jehoshaphat, uh, which is a, a portion of uh, um, this end times uh, drama. And then in Zechariah 12, 9 through 11, It talks about how um, God will destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem in the plain of Megiddo. 
So those are other references, and there are uh, a number of others to this end-time drama. And so I want to close the discussion of uh, the Armageddon campaign by giving you um, eight stages of the Armageddon campaign. Okay, so this is not on your uh, notes, but let me give these to you. I thought it was a, a great summary of a way to think about this as a campaign. And so um, we'll see the assembling of the allies of the Antichrist at the Valley of Jezreel. That's what's facilitated by the sixth uh, bold judgment. And then I think the second thing that will happen is the destruction of Babylon that we've just talked about. I think the the, uh, Antichrist won't be there, but I think his capital will be destroyed. Uh, And he's going to be off uh, attacking uh, Jerusalem. And the third thing is the fall of Jerusalem. And you remember how at the midpoint of the tribulation, um, the Jews were warned to flee to the mountains? Well, I think that will happen. And uh, um, some scholars think that they will actually end up at Petra. Uh, It's called the uh, uh, land, uh, the area of Basra uh, in the um, um, Old Testament, and it's a reference to what we would today call Petra. And so um, I think that um, after the fall of Jerusalem, the Antichrist will uh, take his forces down to attempt to uh, uh, kill the Jews, uh, the remnant of the Jews who are in Basra. So uh, that's... Uh, stage four. Stage five, um, I think, will be the national regeneration of Israel when they will recognize how they've missed the boat and how they will turn back to God at that point in time. Stage six will be the actual um, initiation of the second coming. Stage seven will be uh, part of the um, Armageddon battle, uh, and this battle will range from Basra in the south to the uh, Valley of Jehoshaphat, which um, intersects with the Kidron Valley right there in Jerusalem. And then stage eight will be the victory ascent on the Mount of Olives, and I think that's the time when Christ will stand on the Mount of Olives. Okay? And so that's one scholar's efforts to try to bring some sense to the Armageddon campaign. That actually uh, um, is found in this book, The Footsteps of the Messiah, that uh, um, David Howard gave me uh, right at the beginning of the summer. And it's described as a study of the sequence of prophetic events, and it is a fascinating book. So if you want to dive into uh, going deeper into the sequence of the end times event, this would be a good thing to... uh, um, Put your hands on. And remember, gang, where do we put our stake in the ground? We put our stake in the ground on the fact that Christ is coming back. And so, you know, if there are eight stages or three stages or no stages of the Armageddon campaign, if God decides to do it in a totally different way, man, I am totally okay with that. But what I want to be is I want to be a person who does not miss um, the signs of the end times, okay? And if I were here on earth, I would want to be one uh, during that time frame of saying, hey, I'm reading the signs correctly. That's what he calls us to do, to be prepared, to be ready. And this makes me think of uh, uh, Matthew 24, um, 
43 through 47. Let me read that. But know this. This is part of the Olivet Discourse when Christ is answering his disciples' questions about, you know, what are going to be the signs and how will we know when you're coming back? And he says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must, what? Be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And so gang, you know, the questions we have to ask ourselves, are we ready to see the Lord? If he's coming back tomorrow, if he's coming back next week, what would you do differently? How would you use that time? You know, if the answer is that anything but I'd keep doing what I'm doing, then you need to think about what you're doing. And that last question, if the rapture were next week, who's the one person you would wish to tell about Christ today? You know, we've all got that one person in our lives. And so the question is, what's stopping us from talking to that person now. Because we don't know how long that person has left, how long we have left, how long the uh, uh, we have until the Lord returns. We just don't know. And so what would you start doing? What would you stop doing? What would you keep doing? And I love this middle question. Am I faithfully feeding the household that the Lord has entrusted to me? Well, if I am, then I am Uh, blessed as the servant who his master will find feeding his household. And so, you know, gang, we all have households that we're responsible for. And sometimes that household may just be ourselves, okay? Sometimes it's a family. um, It's certainly a part of our workplace and our neighborhood, our community, our church, the places where we hang out. We all have a, a... uh, family, a relationship that we're responsible for uh, being willing to speak truth in a loving sort of way. And then we go back finally to the uh, uh, heart question. You know, what's our motivation? What's our heart? Is our heart to uh, enlarge Crotty's kingdom or is our heart to enlarge, enlarge the Lord's kingdom? Am I doing this to glorify myself or am I doing this to glorify the Lord? That's what we've got to ask ourselves about whatever we're doing. Be ready and be found doing what the Lord calls us to do. Let me jump ahead. This is what we've got for next week. Uh, Millennium, final revolt, great white throne judgment, new heaven and earth, eternity, review, and Q&A. And so come with your questions. But as we close, I want to go back to uh, Dr. Walford's quote here about the second coming. I love what it says. It says, Christ's second coming is not only the high point of revelation, but the high point of all history. How poverty-stricken is any theology that minimizes the second coming of Christ and how limited the hope 
that does not include this glorious climax to God's program of exalting His Son and putting all creation under His control. One day, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And so the question is, are we going to be ready? And are we going to be found faithful in doing the things that he calls us to do? Well, that's my prayer for each of us. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Lord, it is a humbling thing to think that uh, one day you'll be coming back. And Father, it's my prayer for everyone in here that um, uh, none of us miss that day. That we be uh, part of the uh, church as it's taken off of this earth. That we have the opportunity to stand before you at the judgment seat. And that we be found worthy. And that our deeds be rewarded. And we thank you, Father, that we can aspire uh, to uh, being rewarded Because ultimately, Father, we know that we will have the privilege of casting those crowns back at the uh, feet of your throne. And that we one day will be able to wear um, as our uh, garments the righteous deeds that we've done. And so, Father, my prayer for this group is that each of us might be found uh, faithful in feeding the household that you've entrusted us to. And so, Lord... uh, um, Just pray that you would go with us, that we might finish this study uh, in a way that compels each of us to uh, continue to seek to follow hard after your Son, that one day we might ride with him in the armies of heaven. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.